0: Hello and welcome to the space above us. Episode 12, Project Gemini Introduction. Ah, Project Gemini. I love Project Gemini. When I started this podcast, I think I was actually looking forward to Project Gemini the most. I ended up surprising myself at how engrossed in Project Mercury I became, but I never lost sight of Project Gemini peeking up over the horizon. Between this introduction and the episodes covering the 10 manned missions, I expect this next arc of the space above us to take us clear into 2017, so buckle up. Before we go any further, I need to address something which actually has the potential to be mildly controversial. The word Gemini is spelled G-E-M-I-N-I, which lends itself to two pronunciations. The one I use, and the one I've always heard used in conversation, is Gemini. No big deal, right? Except if you listen to NASA coverage, you'll notice that they always call it Gemini. I'm not exactly sure what has caused this split, and as far as I know there is no official policy on it, but some folks have fun pointing out that NASA leans towards Gemini. With that said, I hereby acknowledge and discard NASA's preference. It'll always be Project Gemini for me. Though, I guess if I'd switched to Gemini, that last sentence would have rhymed and been a little snappier. Whatever. So what is Project Gemini? It may not seem like it, since they flew so far apart, but Project Mercury and the Apollo program were actually happening more or less simultaneously. Big space projects take a long time to get off the ground, so planning has to start early. Even before Project Mercury had flown and before President Kennedy had committed us to the moon— the Apollo program was being worked on as a far more advanced generation of spacecraft to follow Project Mercury. However, as NASA gained experience with these vehicles, and especially in light of the moon landing decision, it became apparent that it was simply too big of a leap to go directly from the primitive single-seater Mercury spacecraft to the order of magnitude more advanced three-seater Apollo spacecraft. They were just worlds apart. It also became apparent that Apollo wouldn't be ready to fly for years after the final planned Mercury flight, leaving an undesirable gap in American human spaceflight. NASA needed something to bridge the gap. Enter Project Gemini. The original intent of Project Gemini was to keep America in space between the final flight of Project Mercury and the first flight of the Apollo program, while also scouting out the path ahead and figuring out how to do some of the tricky stuff that Apollo would need to do. The idea was that if Gemini could tackle these issues, then Apollo could launch, ha, get it, directly into the advanced applications it was designed for. Without Gemini, NASA would have to spend precious time during Apollo figuring this stuff out, and the end of the decade was rapidly approaching. This tricky stuff that I keep talking around included four major objectives. Learn how to rendezvous and dock with other spacecraft in orbit. Learn how to stay in space for the extended durations required by a moon landing, up to two weeks. Learn how to safely exit the spacecraft and perform useful operations in space. Learn how to land more precisely than Project Mercury to ease recovery operations. That all doesn't sound too tricky, but just wait and see. The Gemini spacecraft was essentially just a bigger Mercury spacecraft with seats for two astronauts and some major tweaks for easier maintenance. It was even made by the same company. In fact, the planned capsule was so similar to Mercury that the original name early in development was Mercury Mark II. The plan was more or less to stretch out the Mercury capsule a bit, put two life support systems in there, move all the gear to modular equipment bays for easy access and then fill them with old Mercury equipment in order to save money on developing new gear. Things didn't quite work out that way, but that third bit is an important one. With the Mercury capsule, all of the equipment was just sort of placed wherever. It's one of those things that seems obvious in retrospect, but no one had built a manned spacecraft before. The upshot was that every time some piece of equipment needed to be inspected or replaced, a whole bunch of other gear would need to be removed first. This was extremely time-consuming, and was the source of much of the schedule difficulty with Project Mercury. With Gemini, the plan was to move as much equipment as possible outside of the pressure vessel and into easily accessible independent modular equipment bays. If you're familiar with computer repair, you can kind of think of Gemini as being a desktop PC, which has all of its parts out in the open and easy to swap out. Whereas Mercury was like a laptop, and if you wanted to replace a CPU fan or something, you have to take the whole thing apart first. Speaking of taking things apart, another feature of the Gemini spacecraft that set it apart from its predecessor was the fact that it was split into three modules. The pressurized capsule that the astronauts sat in and actually came home at the end of the mission was called the re-entry module. But to make things a little easier to build and maintain, A bunch of equipment was moved to a module called, you guessed it, the Equipment Module. This was a large section on the rear of the spacecraft that contained stuff like the fuel cells and batteries, propellant for the thrusters, and a bunch of other stuff like that. Stuff that was critical for the mission, but didn't need to come home and was taking up precious space in the reentry module. At the end of the mission, the Equipment Module would be jettisoned, which would expose the Retro Module. This was a sort of smaller equipment module that contained enough resources to keep the spacecraft going in the short time before reentry, but also contained the all important retro rockets. After firing the retro rockets, the retro module 2 would be jettisoned, leaving only the reentry module to safely return to Earth. The other two modules would burn up as part of an uncontrolled reentry. If you take a look at a photo of the Gemini spacecraft, you'll see a dark part up front, the reentry module, and a larger white part in the back, which is the equipment and retro modules stuck together. The reentry module itself was already bigger than the Mercury spacecraft, but with the additional two modules, it was quite a bit bigger while on orbit. A bigger spacecraft called for a bigger launch vehicle. Atlas had performed admirably in its duties launching all four orbital Mercury missions, but the Gemini spacecraft was nearly three times heavier, so it just wasn't going to cut it. After looking at the launch vehicle landscape, NASA settled on the Titan II. The Titan II was an intercontinental ballistic missile being designed by the Air Force as part of the United States' nuclear weapons strategy. The task that the Air Force wanted the Titan II to accomplish was kind of nuts, and really gives a good glimpse into how much time and money was being sunk into Cold War weaponry. The insane logic of nuclear war dictated that the United States acquire the technology to completely devastate the Soviet Union if they ever attacked us, even if the U.S. was already a smoking hole in the ground at that point. Part of the mechanism to achieve this was dozens of missiles and underground silos all over the United States tipped with some of the most destructive weapons ever constructed. In order to deliver their payloads anywhere in the world, these missiles had to be big, really big. The Titan II actually ended up being slightly larger than the Atlas rocket. But what makes this really crazy is that in the event of a nuclear attack, we weren't exactly going to get a lot of warning. If you think back to all the trouble the finicky Atlas launch vehicle gave NASA during Project Mercury, you quickly realize, as the Air Force did, that it was not up to the task of instant retaliation. The main problem was the cryogenic liquid oxygen, which was difficult to keep on hand. So instead of using liquid oxygen and rocket-grade kerosene, the Titan II used hypergolic propellants that could be stored for a long period of time. Hypergolic propellants react instantly when brought together, no ignition necessary, and they can be stored at room temperature for months at a time. This meant that the missiles could be fueled and ready to launch at a moment's notice. Hypergolics are neat, but they're also incredibly toxic, so they're not ideal for manned spaceflight in general, but at that moment, the hypergolic-propelled Titan II was exactly what Gemini needed. The reason I say that the Titan II provided a good idea of how many resources were being pumped into nuclear strategy is if the worst-case scenario happened and all of the missiles launched, the Air Force was basically planning on launching several entire Project Geminis simultaneously. Ah, to have the Department of Defense's budget. Real quick, if you're interested in learning more about the nuclear weapons side of Titan II usage, and U.S. nuclear strategy operations in general, I really recommend the book Command and Control by Eric Schlosser. It's fascinating. A nice side effect of using hypergolic fuels was that in the event of a RUD, that's rocket speak for rapid unscheduled disassembly, or kaboom, the resulting fireball would expand much slower and be far less energetic than a similar incident using traditional propellants. This opened the possibility to removing the heavy launch escape tower and using fighter jet style ejector seats instead. It's kind of crazy to think about it, but the math shows that the ejector seat should stay just ahead of the expanding fireball of death if there was an accident, so that's fun. Atlas was being replaced by Titan for manned launches, but it wasn't quite out of the picture yet. It would still be used to launch Agena, a specialized spacecraft to be used as a rendezvous and docking target for Gemini. Agena was a really advanced upper rocket stage. If you're familiar with the Centaur upper stage used today, it's pretty much the same idea. It was capable of maneuvering while on orbit, providing a stable platform for its payload, power, communications all that good stuff the original intention was to support reconnaissance satellites which it did but nasa continued its smart plan of mooching off the staggering military budgets and snagged a few to basically use as target practice as a cost saving measure the agena targets were to be launched on atlas boosters left over from project mercury we'll be talking a lot more about agena in a few episodes as i mentioned The main goals of Project Gemini were rendezvous and docking, extended duration missions, extravehicular activity, and precision landings. So let's just go through these one at a time. First up, rendezvous and docking. This was a big one. I mean, they were all big ones, but this one especially. By this time, the chosen method for landing on the moon was the now familiar Lunar Orbit Rendezvous. This meant that one rocket would launch the command module and lunar module send them in orbit around the moon, the lunar module will detach and land separately, then return from the surface and dock with the command module before they went home. In order to have confidence that they would be able to rendezvous and dock while in orbit around the moon, NASA first had to try it in orbit around the Earth, where it's a lot easier to recover if things go wrong. Two quick side points. First, rendezvous is just NASA speak for one spacecraft meeting up with another one in space and docking is when those two spacecraft actually connect to each other. Second, lunar orbit rendezvous wasn't always the preferred method for accomplishing the moon landing. There were several alternatives that I hope to get into during the Apollo episodes, but for Gemini, it suffices to say that rendezvous was required. Rendezvous and docking mandated several major new capabilities as compared to the Mercury spacecraft. As you'll recall... The Mercury capsule was only capable of changing its attitude, the direction it was pointing, and firing its retrorockets in order to dip the low part of its orbit into the atmosphere and begin the reentry process. To rendezvous with another spacecraft, you need to be able to make adjustments to your orbit, which Mercury just couldn't do. Gemini would be equipped with several large thrusters that would be able to fire for a long period of time in order to accomplish these changes. Two were in the front, two were in the back and one was on the top, bottom, left, and right. There were also eight smaller thrusters that controlled the spacecraft's attitude, similar to the Mercury vehicle. Together, these 16 engines comprised the OMS, or Orbital Attitude and Maneuvering System. By firing the larger thrusters for extended durations, it was possible to raise, lower, or tilt the orbit of the spacecraft, enabling astronauts to chase down their target. In addition to a new set of thrusters gemini also needed a computer on board to help calculate the proper maneuvers to perform a computer in space no big deal right except planning for gemini started in 1961 computers at this time were measured in tons not grams amazingly the engineers at ibm were able to put together a guidance computer that weighed just shy of 60 pounds for use in project gemini the computer had about 20 kilobytes of memory all of which could be read and written. To put this in perspective, the smallest cartridge size for the original Game Boy held about 256 kilobytes, about 13 times more. Keeping the comparison going, the original Game Boy also sported a CPU that was around 600 times faster than the one running the Gemini Guidance computer. But I guess that's Moore's law for you. Astronauts interacted with the computer via numerical keyboards that looked sort of like the ones on old touchtone telephones. Just dial one 800 rendezvous and you're all set. Next up, extended duration missions. Up to this point, all manned space missions were powered by batteries. I think that even includes the Russians, but I'm not totally sure on that. Batteries just weren't going to work for a lunar landing. Assuming you flew to the moon, immediately landed, immediately took off, and immediately came home, you'd still be looking at a mission that was just shy of a week in length. Carrying batteries for a mission that long would cause too big of a weight penalty, so NASA had to think of something else. The two main options for powering an extended mission were solar panels and fuel cells. Solar panels were rejected for a couple of reasons. First, they're pretty heavy, and they require you to bring along a set of batteries anyway. Second, there wasn't that much experience with solar panels yet, so there was concern about their structural soundness. It's worth noting, however, that the Soviet Union did opt to use solar panels on their next generation spacecraft, the Soyuz. NASA instead landed on fuel cells as the answer. The fuel cells for Gemini would take hydrogen and oxygen and force them to react, producing electricity and, conveniently enough, pure water. Sounds great! The only problem is, at this point there had never been a fuel cell in space. It ended up being one of the new pieces of tech to suffer major development issues and schedule setbacks, and the first few manned Gemini missions were forced to use batteries instead. However, the bugs were eventually worked out, and fuel cells enabled the incredible two-week flight of Gemini 7. Sometimes in the world of aerospace engineering, decisions can have surprising ripple effects. When Gemini was first being designed, it was decided to give each astronaut their own door, I believe this was because they had already settled on using ejector seats instead of a launch escape tower in case of an emergency, which would require each astronaut to be able to get out of the vehicle in milliseconds. So, now you have a vehicle with two big hinged doors that you can open and close. Hmm. You know, I bet you could open one of those doors while you were in space. And actually, I bet you could open the door and even stand up and stick your head out and look around. And actually... I bet you could just leave the spacecraft entirely and float around outside. All sorts of activities would be possible outside the vehicle, thus the first plans for extravehicular activities were born. Extravehicular activity, inevitably shortened to EVA, and often called spacewalks by the public, would be a crucial part of the Apollo program. It would be a little anticlimactic if we flew astronauts all the way to the surface of the moon, and all they could do was peer morosely through their window, No, we needed astronauts to be able to walk around and pick up rocks and play golf and stuff. With the opportunity afforded by Project Gemini's lovely doors, it would be possible to attempt EVAs years before Apollo would fly and learn what we didn't know we didn't know. Spoiler alert, it's a lot. Just ask Gene Cernan in a few episodes. The last on our list of major objectives is precision landings. Up until now, the landing ellipse or the area where the spacecraft could be expected to land, had been pretty large. This made for recovery operations that were not only inconvenient and costly, but were also dangerous. Imagine if Gus Grissom had landed as far off target as Scott Carpenter had, and then his capsule began to sink. With Gemini, the goal was to narrow the landing area down significantly. In fact, the goal was to land on a runway under a deployed, inflatable wing called a Rogallo wing. If that previous sentence surprised you because you didn't realize that Gemini capsules landed on runways, that's because they didn't. Unfortunately, the Rogallo wing suffered from a series of development problems that would almost be comical if they weren't so depressing. To give you an idea, at one point a test failed and the test vehicle was destroyed because a pyrotechnic squib failed to fire. It was the first one known to fail in over 30,000 uses throughout the aerospace industry. The wing was out, but Gemini still made strides in more precise landings by changing its re-entry procedure. Mercury capsules returned to Earth in a purely ballistic profile. They generated no lift and were basically just along for the ride. This was problematic because it was difficult to predict where it would land and the astronaut on board would suffer from really punishing deceleration forces. With Gemini and Apollo, the capsules were designed to provide a small amount of lift, Not a lot, but enough to help change the entry profile and actually steer the vehicle as it went screaming through the upper atmosphere. In fact, Apollo went fast enough and generated enough lift that at a few places in its entry profile, it would bounce back up again and gain altitude. By adding lift capability to Gemini, NASA could test out yet another facet of the incredibly complex Apollo program years before they were scheduled to fly. Sharp-eared listeners may have noticed a new name in the previous section, Gene Cernan. Well, there are more than a few new names to learn, since the Mercury 7 were no longer America's only astronauts. The six remaining astronauts—John Glenn had retired in 1964 to pursue a career in politics—were now joined by two new groups imaginatively named the New Nine, who joined in September 1962, and the Fourteen, who joined in October 1963. I'll give you one guess how many astronauts were in each of those groups. We're going to have a lot of time to talk about all of these guys over the next few months, so I'm going to once again do that thing where I just rattle off a list of names that you'll forget right away, but at least this time when you hear them again, they might sound familiar. Okay, so the new nine. Neil Armstrong. Frank Borman. Charles Pete Conrad. James Jim Lovell, hey, I've met him, James Jim McDivitt, Elliot C., Thomas Tom Stafford, Edward Ed White, and John Young. In the 14, Edwin Buzz Aldrin, William Bill Anders, Charles Charlie Bassett, Alan Al Bean, Eugene Gene Cernan, Roger Chaffee, Michael Collins, R. Walter Cunningham, Don Isle, Theodore Ted Freeman, Richard Dick Gordon, Russell Rusty Schweikart, David Scott, and Clifton C. C. Williams. So the first thing I want to say is, what is the deal with nicknames in the sixties? The second thing I want to say is, wow, this is quite a group. In this group, there are two alums from the X-15 program, there are space shuttle pilots, the first three men to leave the Earth behind on Apollo 8, and eight of the twelve men who would eventually set foot on the moon. Just for completeness, the remaining astronauts from the Mercury 7 were Alan Shepard, Gus Grissom, Scott Carpenter, Wally Shira, Gordon Cooper, and Deke Slayton. Shepard, Carpenter, and Slayton were grounded for medical reasons, but Shepard and Slayton would eventually fly again. Or in Slayton's case, at all, I guess. Alright, that concludes our whirlwind introduction to the project we'll be spending the next six or so months with. There's a lot of crazy stuff I could get into, but I think I'll save them for supplementals or just drop them in along the way so that the important stuff has a chance to settle. As a sneak peek, did you know that the Air Force almost took over Project Gemini? Or that they were going to order their own lines of Gemini capsules called Blue Gemini. Or how about the plans for a larger 12-man Gemini capsule creatively called Big Gemini. Or my favorite Gemini shocker, tentative plans to send men to the moon and even land on it before Apollo even had a chance to fly. It's a lot to take in, so if I missed anything or if you're unclear on anything, you're probably not alone. So, please don't hesitate to contact me and ask for a clarification, and I'll do my best to work it into the podcast, or at the very least set you straight via email. And how should you contact me? You can always reach me via email at jp at thespaceabove.us. That's jp at thespaceabove.us. Just to be super clear, that domain name is T H E S P A C E A B O V E. Dot us you can also reach me via twitter at the username at space above us i dropped the the to save a few characters and you can also try the show's poor forlorn facebook page at facebook.com slash the space above us with those last two following and retweeting or liking or whatever helps the show a lot so if you're enjoying the show that kind of social media engagement would be very much appreciated and while i'm already begging for internet favors If you could take the minute and rate and review on iTunes or Google Play or whatever you're using to listen, it really does help me a ton by letting me reach more people. Anyway, that's enough self-promotion, especially after I did it last episode. So join me in two weeks as we discuss the first manned mission in Project Gemini, with the return of original Mercury 7 astronaut Gus Grissom, and introduction of new 9 rookie John Young aboard the unsinkable Molly Brown on Gemini 3. Are you excited? I'm excited. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass.